0: Now we begin by bowing for prayer. Our Father, we lift up our hearts unto your throne, because your Son, our Savior, the Eschatological David, has lifted us up to the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We belong to you, where he has bought us with his own precious blood and covered our fearful unrighteousness with his perfect and spotless righteousness we stand to adore you and to praise you and to ask you by the Spirit of the risen Christ your own Holy Spirit to illumine our minds and hearts our love of your word our love of your truth our love of your own character our love of being Christ's. We pray, Father, that we may see him, even as we see David. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are at First Samuel 29, and I'm wondering if any of you noted a structural pattern here. In this chapter, and if so, if you want to uh, risk your reputation on telling me what it is, or telling all of us what it is, Nobody wants to risk their reputation. I can I can sympathize. Margaret? Well, in verse 1, um, the Israelites are in Jezreel, and then in verse eleven, the talks the last sentence talks about the Philistines are in Jezreel. Go to the head of the class. You don't you don't have to risk your reputation. <clears throat> You've got the reputation. Now what do we call that, Don? What do we call what she just spotted? Carol? And not a chiasm. What is it, Bill? It's a big bracket. It's an inclusio, correct. (laughs) It's an inclusio. Now, that word inclusio means it includes within. Jezreel in the first verse and Jezreel in the 11th verse the drama that is in the meat of the chapter. The narrator is framing it. He's providing this bracket as an inclusive bracket. I'm going to include between these limits of Jezreel 1, Jezreel 11, the drama of the narrative I'm going to feature. So it's a a narrative device. It's a literary device. It's a structural device that features The center of the narrator's drama and inclusios occur throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament alike. You will find them all over the Bible if you look for them, head of the class or not. All right. Now, having noted that the narrator folds the drama of the staging of the Philistine army with the denouement, or the conclusion of those maneuvers at Jezreel. Having noted that Jezreel is where the final act, the denouement, in Saul's career will occur, we have one of the clues as to why he provides the inclusio. He is focusing upon this staging or mustering drama that occurs in the verses between 1 and 11 in chapter 29. Now, he also features something else. And here's a place where uh, we'll think about the reason for the inclusio and we'll note that the narrator may have many uh, motives. He may have many features in mind as he brackets this section. And my second suggestion is that he features the separation of David from Achish. He features the separation of David from the Philistine army. All right, he not only features the place where the conclusion of this staging uh, retinue is going to occur at Jezreel, but he features the separation of David from Achish. And once again... (laughs) If that is something that is driving him within the limits of this inclusio, why is he featuring that? First of all, it removes David from any direct or indirect involvement in Saul's death. You recall that our narrator has featured a number of accounts in which David spares Saul's life. And on the basis of touch not mine anointed, David has not uh, taken Saul's life when he was near enough t- to do so. And so in this inclusio, the narrator continues that theme. Only here, David is removed from being in the vicinity when Saul's life will be taken. <coughs> Consequently, the separation of David from the Philistine army is a separation that distances him from having any hand in Saul's death. He is far away. Second, this separation sends David and Achish in opposite directions to antithetical military confrontations. You will notice that David has a confrontation with the ancient enemy of Israel, namely the Amalekites, in the next chapter, chapter 30. Achish is going in the opposite direction, northernmost, as David goes southernmost, Achish is going northernmost to an encounter with the ancient enemy of the Philistines, namely Israel, in chapter 31. And so the opposite directional vectors are opposite direct, opposite vectors of antithetical confrontation. Finally, the distance separating David and Akish is further testimony to God's hand. God's hand upon the king elect. David is wonderfully and providentially recused From using his arms against his own people while using those very same arms in behalf of his own people. And so the providence of God in this inclusio is setting up the next two chapters in such a way that God's hand will be dramatically apparent in the movement of David and in the movement of the Philistines. So the directional vector towards Jezreel, which frames this chapter, finds David journeying in the opposite direction. David goes not up to Jezreel with Achish and the Philistine army, As the directional arrow, so the directional providence of God. David's upward spiral proceeds apace. All right, but our narrator has an even larger purpose beyond that inclusio, which frames this 29th chapter. You will notice how he has structured his narrative since chapter 27. In chapter 27, what do we have? What story do we have? David, goes to live with Achish. David and Achish in chapter 27. What do we have in chapter 29? David and Achish again. This time separating, but it's the same characters. And in between, we have chapter 28. What do we have there? Saul at Endor. Right. Notice what our narrator has done. Once again, we ask why our narrator sandwiched the account of Saul at Endor. between similar accounts of David and Achish. He purposely interrupts his narrative of David and Achish by inserting Saul's nocturnal debacle, a debacle which is even chronologically subsequent to the events in chapter 29. Saul's visit to Endor is likely the day before the battle of Jezreel. But David's separation from Achish has occurred long before that. Understand that by inserting chapter 28 between 27 and 29, he raises the question of the chronological sequence. And so... We ask ourselves, is our editor suffering from chronological confusion? Has he been ill-served by a fallible redactor or editor who has mistakenly collated his manuscript so as to misalign the events and has placed chapter 28 out of place? Now, every liberal will like that because, of course, they don't think that there is any infallible consistency in the scriptures. But you should know by now that I do not believe this narrator is that silly, nor is he chronologically confused or dominated by a board of editors with a hidden agenda. He is a master craftsman, fully in charge of his narrative art, And well aware of why he has assembled his narrative as we have it. He intends us to ponder the insertion of chapter 28 between the two David Achish narratives in 27 and 29. And as we ponder it, we ask ourselves, what is our narrator up to? Well... Where is David at the climax of Saul's career? Yea, the climax of his life as it approaches. He is serving the Lord by infiltrating and confronting the enemies of the people of God, namely the Philistines and the king of Gath. Where is Saul? Saul as the climax of his career and his life approaches. He is repudiating the Lord once again, Saul in character. He is repudiating the Lord once again by pursuing the handmaid of the prince of darkness while abandoning himself to superstition and divination, which is the sin of rebellion. (coughs) Our narrator knows how to frame a dramatic and stark literary contrast. Saul at a witch's abode. David active in delivering the children of Israel from death. Saul active in seeking death. David acting in giving life. Contrast. Is dramatic and our narrator wants you to see it and to think of this radical contrast between these two figures all right let's consider the geography of this incident and take your maps particularly number one at the top of the page of maps in your handout that map that features the staging area at Aphek. If you find Aphek there on the map on the west coast or on the coastal plain of Palestine, Aphek where Achish and the lords of the Philistines muster their troops. Aphek appears as a location associated with the last battle between Israel and the Philistines in the book of 1 Samuel. It is the place associated with the last battle between Israel and the Philistines in the book of 1 Samuel. But, but Aphek is also the location at which Israel and the Philistines fought their first battle in the book of 1 Samuel. Chapter 4, verse 1, at Aphek, where the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant, where Hophni and Phinehas died in that battle at Aphek with the Philistines, where Eli fell backwards and died of a broken neck when he heard the report of the capture of the ark in that battle at Aphek. And Phinehas's wife, Phineas' wife, hearing the report of the capture of the ark of the Lord, gives birth to Ichabod and dies for the glory has departed. <clears throat> Aphek, Israel and the Philistines. Aphek back brackets the battles between these two nations in 1 Samuel. The glory of Israel departs at the first confrontation at Aphek, and the king of Israel departs at the last confrontation at Aphek. Aphek first and last. Aphek and the grip of the enemies of God upon Israel because of the rebellion and disobedience of her leaders. Aphek and the grip of the enemies of God upon Israel because of the rebellion of Hophni and Phineas and the rebellion of Saul the rebellion and disobedience of her leaders. And you don't think this narrator is a genius. He frames that disobedience and the judgment that follows in the very first and last major battle confrontations between Israel and their traditional enemy. And he frames them because they occur at the very same location or in an extension thereof. This is brilliant narrative construction. Inspiration aside, it is brilliant narrative construction. The man knows how to write a drama. Well, from the staging area at Afik, location of the drama here in chapter twenty nine. The Philistines will advance to Shunem. Take a look at your map. Shunem, approximately 40 miles north of Aphek, an event which has already been mentioned in chapter 28, verse 4. Here we are back to chapter 28, an apparent lack of chronological consistency. And yet, once again, our narrator anticipates events in chapter 28 which have not yet occurred until after the events in chapter 29 have transpired. Clearly, the Philistines march from Aphek to Shunem, and that is subsequent to David's separation from Achish. He fast forwards to Saul's last night, potentially, in order to feature this contrast between David and the renegade or reprobate king. And he does it with style, he does it with literary brackets, he does it with his memory of the events which frame the entire debacle. All right, verse 2. Now you'll note there the phrase, the lords of the Philistine." The lords of the Philistines. Does anyone know who they are? They are the kings of the famous or infamous Philistine Pentapolis. The Philistine Pentapolis, what does Pentapolis mean? Anyone? Five cities, the famous five cities of the Philistine nation, five queen cities or principal cities of the Philistine nation mentioned numerous times in the Old Testament, particularly in the books of Joshua and Judges. They are Gaza, which remains in the news even today, 3,000 years after the fact of this story. Ekron, Ashdod, Ashkelon. And of course, Akish's city, Gath. Each of these lords was king of one of those cities. And so the five Philistine Pentapolis have their own individual king. Akish is joined here by his royal peers, the lords of the Philistine nation. Now, these regiments or these thousands and hundreds that are proceeding on is a regimental review. The army is being mobilized on their way from Aphek to Shunem and Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines, the kings of the five Philistine cities, are standing and reviewing the troops as they pass on. And David David brings up the rear. Why does David bring up the rear? Is he shy? Hanging back? Is he guarding Akish, who is also advancing from the rear? He has... In fact, been appointed Achish's bodyguard. Is that the reason he is in the rear of the Philistine army? Or is he in the rear for other purposes which do not appear at first sight? I will leave you to ponder that one as we go on. But let us think a little more deeply about why David may be at the back of the Philistine army. In verse 3, we now have the commanders of the Philistines. All right, these are not the lords of the Philistines in verse 2. This is a different Hebrew word. These are the generals of the Philistine army. And so you have the kings, the five kings in verse 2, and you have this multiplicity of commanders in verse 3. And they provide a blunt confrontational question, a blunt confrontational and degrading question, degrading question. Now, why do I say degrading question? What is there in that interrogative in verse three of theirs that is degrading? There's only one word that can qualify. Hebrews, Hebrews, correct. And yet, when you use that term, you wouldn't use it with degradation, would you? You would use it as a description of the descendants of Abraham, the first man called a Hebrew in the Bible, Genesis 14. Well, recall that children of Israel have been referred to by the Philistines over and over again in 1 Samuel, but particularly in chapter 4, verse 9, particularly in chapter 4, verse 9, the children of Israel or the Hebrews have been referred to as the slaves of the Philistines. The slaves of the Philistines. Your modern versions translate the word servants, and it doesn't catch the bite in the Hebrew term. They are regarded by the Philistines as their slaves. Lowlife, social outcasts. Goliath had challenged Israel on that basis. We will become your slaves if you defeat me, we will, uh, <coughs> and, and you will become our slaves if you defeat me. And so <coughs> this term is a term of reproach. It is a term of contempt what are these lowlife, slave, social, outcast Hebrews doing here? This is an insult. Now these commanders are going to speak again in the next verse, in verse 4. And their contempt and rejection of David and his troops will sandwich Achish and his naive defense of David. Notice, their interrogative in verse 3a is contemptuous. In verses 4 and 5, their declarative, namely rejection of David, is emphatic. And in between, their contempt and their emphatic rejection when they speak in 3a and 4 and 5, in between is 3b, the interrogative defense of Akish. Akish squeezed between the displeasure of his commanders. Things are not going well for the king of Gath. His commanders have wised up to the fact that, is this not David? The very next question they ask in verse 5. Is this not David is the very same phrase that the courtiers or servants of Achish used in chapter 21, verse 11, when David first came to Achish at Gath and feigned madness. These commanders have a long and accurate memory of David. He used subterfuge before. Back when he was dribbling in his beard and scribbling on the gates of Gath, he will use subterfuge again. Back to verse 4. He will be Satan He will be Satan in the Hebrew. He will be Satan to us. For the root meaning of Satan or Satan in Hebrew is adversary. He will be our adversary, not our ally. The commanders are men of military wisdom and observation. This man, David, is a fifth column in our midst. He snookered us once before. He is snookering us again by insinuating himself into our ranks in order to turn his sword against us and remove our heads. Remove our heads as he removed Goliath. Akish, you hired him as the keeper of your head, your bodyguard. Akish, he gonna take your head off. Tell him to go back to Ziglag. Now the repetition of the ditty in verse 5, Saul slain his thousands and David his ten thousands, the repetition of that ditty also repeats the mention of that peon of praise in chapter 21, verse 11. In fact, this is the third time that this chorus has been used by our narrator in the unfolding story of David. Chapter 18, verse 7, was its first appearance after David slew Goliath. Chapter 21, verse 11, is its second appearance. And its third and final appearance is here in 29.5. The emphatic play of this praise of David is very interestingly in the mouths of the Philistines twice as often as it is in the mouths of the children of Israel. Twice as often his enemies repeat The praise of David. He is more of a threat than that wimp of a king Saul. The double rejection of David by the inner circle of Achish's court in chapter 21 and Achish's field commanders in chapter 29 underscores the suspicion in which David is held even though Akish, unsuspecting Akish comes to his defense twice over. Oh, the doubling patterns that this narrator uses in order to reinforce his dramatic points. The skill of this man is amazing. And why is Akish, who appears to us to be a mere dupe, why is Akish so confident of David? Why? Because in chapter 27 verse 12, Akish had called David his servant forever. And remember what I suggested about the meaning of that Hebrew word, servant. He is Akish's slave forever. Akish is blindsided by David because he regards David as his slave. He owns him. Why be suspicious of one he believes he controls like a slave? Akish is obsessed with his own power trip. I have the king-elect of Israel serving me, enslaved by me, loyal to me, fighting for me. He is mine. I own him. He wouldn't dare be disloyal to me. I would never even imagine such a thing. That I own him forever. Belongs to me. And to doubly underscore his confidence in his Hebrew slave, Achish twice declares that he finds no fault, no evil in David. Verse 3 and verse 6. Oh, these doublings that this narrator keeps piling up upon us. David has caused Achish to perceive that he is a loyal ally, even a loyal slave, a loyal ally and slave of the Philistine monarch, when in fact he is and has been ever since his arrival in Gath and Ziglag 16 months previous, the Satan. He has been the adversary of the Philistines and Achish. Worming his way into a position of playing the slave in order to set the Hebrew slaves free from Philistine oppression and death. Akish, who in verses 3 to 5 is sandwiched by his commanders, now, notice the double now in verse 7 and verse 10, now Akish. Sandwiches David in verses 6 to 10. Achish frames David, verses 6 and 7, and then again verses 9 and 10, around David in verse 8. The framing devices are to drive us to the center of the personal drama. The Philistine commanders having squeezed Achish, Achish squeezes David on account of the Philistine commanders. Achish faces an implicit adversary within his own camp, a body of opposition no longer deceived by what David appears to be. The truth, the truth of David's role has dawned on the commander's Akish is compelled to go along, lest he risk dissension and rebellion in his own ranks. David may be pleasing in the sight of Akish. verse 6 doubled in verse 9. There's a doubling again, but note the antithesis. He is not pleasing in the sight of the Lord's. The interrogative now passes to David in verse 8. Notice the use of the interrogative throughout this section. Form of a question. And now David uses the form of the question. What have I done? What have I done? David feigns a role once more. Here, as he had done in his first encounter with Achish, when he pretended insanity, here he feigns injured innocence. Why may I not go out against the enemies of my lord the king? Double interrogative in verse 8. Two questions in verse 8. As if to place unsuspecting Akish off guard. We must understand that our narrator records these events with Akish. In order to underscore this truth, this truth. David before Achish is never as he really is. Never as he really is. He only appears to be a madman in chapter 21, but he is really perfectly sane. He only appears to be an oppressor of Israel in chapter 27 but he really is Israel's deliverer. He only appears to be the ally of Achish and the Philistines here in chapter 29, but he really is invading the Philistine army from the rear. That's the reason he's back there, biding his time to roll up the flank from behind. Our narrator's motive that appearances are deceiving thematically binds chapters 27, 28, and 29 of his masterful narrative. Our narrator demands, our narrator demands that we read against the grain. We read against the grain, against the line of appearances in order to discern the line of reality. He is demanding that of us all through 27, 28, and 29. And if you miss it, you are not following what your narrator is asking you to do of David's upward spiral The upward spiral of David proceeds by reality, not by appearances, as the downward spiral of Saul proceeds by reality, not by specters of mediums, hallucination, and power of suggestion. Read against the grain. All is not as it appears. In 27, 28, and 29. Thematic narrative consistency. Well, verse 9. The antithesis returns. Akish declares that David is like an angel of God. Why do I say antithesis? The commanders in verse 4 have labeled David a Satan, a Satan. Akish labels him an angel of God. The irony is not only delicious, it is auspicious. For in our next scene, David will act the part of an avenging and delivering angel a messenger of God commissioned to save his own family and the families of his loyal band of outcasts. Akish does not know the depth of the label he has placed upon David. Verses 10 and 11. Now, how many times does our narrator record the phrase early in the morning? How many times, Don? Carol? How many times in verses 10 and 11? How many times? Three times. There you go, Don, good. You redeemed yourself. Excellent. Okay. Three times he uses the phrase early in the morning. Why? Well, it's just incidental. (laughs) Just skip over that. You know, we got that point, all right, let's go on. Why does he do it three times? When a Hebrew writer repeats something, what's the basic reason for doing it? Emphasis. Emphasis. That's right. Now, here is triple emphasis. He is very emphatic about David rising up early in the morning. Why so emphatic? Go back to verse 25 of chapter 28. Verse twenty-five of chapter twenty-eight. Do you see it? That's why he does it. This is the stinger on the contrast between David and Saul. David departs from the Philistines as they advance to the slaughter. Of the armies of Saul and Israel and he departs in the light, in the dawn's early light. Saul advances towards the Philistines and the slaughter of his army and he advances out of the night, out of the darkness. Our narrator paints a stark contrast between the daylight in which the king-elect of the Lord moves away from the destruction of Israel by her enemies, and the darkness of the night in which the reprobate king moves toward the destruction by the enemy of the people of God. Saul's own death, out of the darkness of his prostration before a medium, Saul's own death is God's judgment. God's dark judgment upon his downward spiral. A judicial judgment and abandonment of Saul to the wages of sin. The wages of sin, which is death. In chapter 29, the hidden kingship and kingdom of David appears covered with compromise and potentially even deceit. But the truth is that in 1 Samuel 29, David emerges into the open. David emerges into the open as the elect of the Lord, the one rejected by his own, by Saul, and the one rejected by the nations, by the Philistines. David is sent back to Ziglag, absent from the death of Saul and Jonathan, because his is a very different kingdom, it is not a kingdom grounded on egocentrism, Akish. It is not a kingdom grounded in paranoia, Saul. It is a kingdom anchored in union with God. His life has been bundled with the living God. Back to Abigail's comment in chapter 25. And so God's hand is hidden behind the veiled appearances of chapter 29. The almighty hand which spares David fighting against the Lord's own. The almighty hand which saves him to fight against the enemies of Israel. The almighty hand which vindicates his identification with a kingdom which possesses an everlasting threat an everlasting threat to the anti-kings and the anti-kingdoms of this world. David comes out into the open and begins to display openly the character of his wonderful kingdom. The upward spiral which climaxes here in chapter 29 is the culmination of the themes which have intruded their way into the life of David from his anointing by Samuel in chapter 16. Election. Life. Conflict with the king and kingdom opposed to his own. Orientation towards the future. The sandwich of David with Akish. Squeezing Saul and the witch of Endor is a literary contrast which sets David over against Saul for the last time. Saul goes out into the night from the presence of a witch. David goes out into the light from the presence of one who calls him an angel of God. Saul is left to his fate. David is providentially spared complicity. God preserves David's life while death hovers all around Saul. He who appears to live a charmed life in reality has his life bundled with the living in God himself. Nor can we fail to perceive the poignant element in Achish's farewell in verse 7 of chapter 29. Go in peace. Shalom. Shalom is pronounced upon the king elect even by his enemy. More than Achish realizes, shalom is the hallmark of David's kingdom. Peace, not paranoia. Peace, not parricide. Peace, not peevishness. David's kingdom is the opposite of Saul's, the opposite of the Philistines. David appears to be a man of war opposed to Israel. He is in reality a prince of peace for the people of God. But chapter 29 anticipates the future. The end of the old at last and the dawn of the new at last. The Philistines go to Jezreel. David goes to Ziglag. Jezreel will bring Saul and his kingdom to the end. No more Saulides on the throne of Israel. The future goes with David to Ziglag and to Hebron and to Jerusalem. This one who surpasses Saul at every point. Saul has slain his thousands. David is ten thousands. This one who surpasses Saul at every point is bound to the Lord who creates the future. The present appears to end with David's retreat to Ziglag in reality. It is God's confirmation that David's story is the future of the kingdom of Israel. He has the future in his heart because God's future has folded him into God's heart. The appearances of chapters 27 to 29, are transcended by the reality hidden in God's election, in his gift of life to his chosen anointed, in his kingdom of shalom, in the future of his people. So too, great David's greater son. Jesus appears to be rejected of God. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In reality, he is the Lord's elect. Jesus appears to be overcome and enslaved by death. In reality, he is the resurrection and the life. Jesus appears to be one whom we would turn our face and hide from, but he is the one altogether lovely and desirable. Jesus appears to be a false king, an anti-king. In reality, he is the king of kings. Jesus appears to be trapped by the past. No help in the present. Helpless with respect to the future. In reality, the future is embodied in him and in his kingdom. The past comes alive in his life, death, death and resurrection, and heaven. Heaven is present in this one. Heaven is present in Jesus, the eschatological David. There is where the fullness of the open kingdom of heaven comes to you. For behold... I declare unto you, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what Jesus said to you, opening the gates of his kingdom to his people, his elect, the beloved of his father. If you have any questions about 29, before we take our break, any comments that you might like to make about this chapter? Robert? Um, I'm trying to figure out why any of these battles are taking place (laughs) in the first place, because at the battle between David and Goliath, it was supposed, the Philistines lost that wager, so aren't they the slaves now of the Hebrews? No, they didn't become the slaves of the Hebrews. That was the proposal that Goliath uh, ventured. Uh, the uh, defeat of the Philistines and their flight back to their nation after Goliath's death at the end of chapter 17 uh, seems to be an escape or a flight that Saul tolerates. He allows them to get out of Israelite territory temporarily and to get back within their own borders. But the marauding of the Philistines will continue until 2 Samuel 5. And in 2 Samuel 5, David will once and for all put an end to the Philistine incursions into the nation of Israel. There will never again after 2 Samuel 5 be another Philistine attack on Israel. Now in chapter 30, verse 1, David comes to Ziglag. You take a look at the second map on your sheet of maps and remind yourself of the position of Ziglag and keep the map in front of you as you look at the drama that unfolds here in this chapter. The text says that he came to Ziglag on the third day, and if we combine verse 1 with verse 13, where you notice that the Egyptian slave of the Amalekites says that he was left behind three days before. So that the third day... (coughs) Well, the first day of uh, the events of David's uh, departure from Achish is in fact the first day of the raid of the Amalekites upon Ziglag when it was burned. So that when David is leaving Achish, Ziglag is being looted, plundered, and burned. Why? Why the Amalekite raid on David's Philistine residence? Payback, Payback. good, Don. It is retaliation for David's raid on the Amalekites, chapter 27, verse 8. And the word raid that appears here in verse 1 is the very same Hebrew word for raid that appears in chapter 27 verse 8 as David raided the Amalekites the Amalekites raid David and his uh, uh, base in Ziglag but I want you to notice one more thing about this Hebrew word if you turn over for a moment to chapter 31 verse 9 you will notice that Saul's body is stripped of his weapons. This is the same word for raid that we have seen in chapter 30, verse 1, and in chapter 27, verse 8. And now you understand why the writer uses the word in chapter 30. Can you imagine being in David's entourage of 600 as you're marching down the road towards Ziglag, And what do you see unfold before your eyes as you approach the city that you left some three days before or more? You see a city stripped. You see it plundered and burned. You have a graphic image, not just the fact that it was raided and they left, but it was stripped and you see it. As you march towards the place where you left your wives, your sons, your daughters, your homes, your livestock, where you left everything that was precious to you in this world. Now, how is it the Amalekites are still marauding? Hadn't Saul been commanded to wipe them out? and yet he disobeyed God in chapter 15 and did not wipe them out. David had left no living voice to tell what he had done, and yet he had not wiped out the Amalekites. So the Amalekites are a thorn in the flesh of the Lord's anointed because they had not been put to the ban as they should have been, When the children of Israel first came into the land under Joshua, when Saul does not do what he was commanded to do, and David could not do what he wanted to do to all of them, they return to plague David, to plague the people of God. Verse 2. And they took captive the women, both small and great, without killing anyone the Amalekites are more merciful than David chapter 27 verse 9 David left no one alive where are they where are they headed take a look at your map where are they headed Notice your left hand arrow coming up the Ziglag is the advance of the Amalekites, and then that dark arrow is their retreat. They're headed towards the south. And what is south? What is south of Palestine? When Joseph went south, where was he headed? And what were they going to do with him? Yes, they were going to sell him as a slave. So are the Amalekites more merciful than David? No, they're more mercenary than David. They are going to sell. David's and his, and his uh, guerrilla band, they're going to sell their women and children in the slave markets in Egypt. <clears throat> Notice that as they go south towards Egypt, they go south towards the brook Besor. That word carried off in verse 2 is another graphic term. It would be better translated herded them off like livestock. And so you can see the image of the Amalekites driving the women and children and every other living thing that they took from Ziglag before they burned and stripped the city, driving them like you would drive cattle or sheep or any herd of flocks. they are animals being driven to slavery and uh, to degradation. Now notice the sandwich in verse three when David and his men came it's a sandwich that brackets verse one it's the very same phrase David and his men came. The difference between verse one and verse three, is not only the fact that it sandwiches the capture of the women and those that were left behind, apparently in safety, but obviously not. It not only sandwiches them, but it uh, features in verse 3 the next word after when David and his men came to the city, the word behold. You see it. David's men see it. It's the visual image here that the narrator is trying to create with his vocabulary. He wants you to catch the graphic tragedy of this scene and the horror which greets the eyes of the returning uh, soldiers of David's retinue. What were they expecting to behold? Their loved ones, their homes, their wives, their children... Their sons and daughters running out to say, hi, Daddy, glad you're home. Their livestock lowing and bellowing. And yet, what do they find? Ruin. Homes burnt to ashes. Families gone. Completely gone. Every beloved face they expected to see, not there. Absent. Property looted. Every precious thing they left behind they couldn't take with them on the bivouac with David is gone or burned. They see it. Behold, you see it. You see it through their eyes. He's drawing you into the scene so that you will have the same sense of bitter disappointment that they had. And they'd been marching for three days marching for three days, a distance of about 60 miles from Afek to Ziglag, about 60 miles. Three days on a march, approximately 20 miles a day, that's a long march for a walking army, and they're tired, hungry, and exhausted, and what do they see? They don't see dinner on the pot, they don't see water in the well, they see nothing but destruction. Verse 4 emphasizes that theme of exhaustion. They are so exhausted that when they weep, when they lift up their voices to lament what has happened, and here we have men weeping. No shame in that, men. None whatsoever. Weeping because they are so saddened by the loss of their families and they weep until they have no more strength to weep. Tears dry up because there are no more tears to come. Verse 5. Why does the narrator note this? It would seem to be obvious, a no-brainer. Why does he note this? He's not exempt. He's not exempt exactly. David is included in the loss and the grief. As his men weep for their loss, David weeps for his loss. His wives have also been seized captured and deported david identifies with the loss of his men with his allies but then in verse 6 what are the men doing they're upset yes they're upset with david making him what Making him the scapegoat. Correct. It's because David brought this upon them and they want to stone him. But David strengthens himself in the Lord. The upward spiral continues. The narrator wants you to see the very different contrast between the distress that comes upon David at Ziglag And the distress that comes upon Saul at Jezreel. Saul goes to a witch's abode and abandons the strength of the Lord for a specter. David, in his distress, strengthens himself in the Lord with whose life, his own life, is bundled. And in verse 7, an additional contrast, Abiathar, who is the priest, is with the king elect. He is not with the king reject. You recall Abiathar's story, how he came come to David. He is a sole surviving priest of the death of the priest at Nob by Doeg the Edomite. The massacre in chapter 22 is spared one. Abiathar comes with the ephod, the ephod perhaps even uh, strapped upon him or worn upon his breast, uh, the ephod, and David asks him to inquire of the Lord now how might he inquire and this is Rich's favorite answer Rich how does he inquire of the Lord when he comes to, when, he, when the ephod is before him you've said this a couple of times before it's the reason I'm throwing you this softball yes but <laughs> I guess it wasn't a softball I guess it was a hardball I apologize for catching you uh, off guard there. <laughs> does your wife know, does your wife remember so you can help you out? Okay. The Urim and Thummim. Yeah, oh yeah, there you go. Okay. It, it was a softball after all, wasn't it? Okay. Alright. Once again, this process of inquiring of the ephod may involve the Urim and Thummim. And Rich has observed this several times before as we've had the ephod uh, in the narrative. And here the inquiry, uh, which is before David, may involve the Urim and Thummim. I only make the observance that it's not mentioned here, Okay, which doesn't mean it's not here, Okay, but it's not mentioned here. And so it's perfectly possible that he's wearing the ephod without the Urim and Thummim and he's inquiring on behalf of David. And God is responding to that. It's not a big point, but it's just simply the fact that the text is silent on the presence of the Urim and Thummim. And we we assume that wherever there's an inquiry and God gives an answer, it's always there. Okay, I mean, that's possible. I'm not denying that that's possible. But here I'm demanding a little more explicit testimony to the actual use of the Urim and Thummim uh, if it is being used here. But at any rate, we agree that God is answering David as he inquires of the priest with the ephod in the picture. And God gives his assurance in verse eight that he will uh, overtake and uh, he will pursue them and overtake them. Notice David's question. Shall I pursue and overtake? And David assures him that you shall pursue, you shall overtake. And God adds, you shall rescue. And some of your versions may say all, which is, of course, implicit from what we know from the rest of the story, though it's not literally in the original Hebrew text. You shall rescue all of them. The assurance of God is more than even what we ask or think. Here is David given, shall we say, a kind of bonus assurance by God that all will be retrieved and rescued. Now, the key to this chapter is in the verbs. The verbs are verbs of action. Uh, Of course, all verbs are verbs which are dealing with uh, acts or movement in general. But here we have this visual action. Verse 1, David came to Ziglag. Verse 3, David came to Ziglag. Verse 10, David pursued. You see David on the run. In verse 16, David brought him down. Uh, Verse 21, David came. Verse 26, David came. And so the narrative structure of this chapter is by the movement of David, which is reinforced or underscored by these verbs of motion. David returns to Ziglag in verse 1. He then leaves Ziglag in pursuit to the brook Besor in verse 9. He comes down on the Amalekites in verse 16 which is the center of his motion, center of his movement, the focus of his movement. And then balancing verse 9 is verse 21. He returns from the pursuit to Besor. And finally, verse 26 balances verse 1. He returns to Ziglag. We have a chiastic narrative structure of movement. David moving from uh, uh, sorrow to triumph uh, by bringing Uh, The Amalekites uh, to to heal and rescuing uh, those who have been captured by the Amalekites. Now, if you look at your map, you look at the Brook Besor on the map, which is the place at which uh, David uh, to which David pursues the Amalekites as they retreat. Now, notice verses nine and ten. As you look at those two verses, you'll notice that they are uh, virtual duplicates again. Here is this doubling pattern that our narrator continues to use. Verse 9, David went he and 600 and came to the brook Besor where those were left behind remained. Then verse 10, David pursued he and 400 for 200 were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor and remained behind. I'll have another Visual image, David's 600 approaching the brook Basur, and then verse 10, him leaving 200 there because they're too exhausted to continue, and 400 proceed across the brook. You see the picture in your eye as David leaves behind these 200 to uh, guard uh, whatever they had to uh, leave with them and advances across the barrier which is uh, going to uh, lead to the rescue uh, of his uh, captured uh, families. Verse 11, he finds this abandoned Egyptian. Now this young man had been abandoned. Why? He was sick, verse 13, and being sick and left behind, what was his fate? Death. He would have died either by starvation or by a sickness uh, in the three days. Uh, He's already been three days left behind. He would have been dead uh, probably within a week or week and a half. Uh, Here is an indication of the cruelty of the Amalekites. Uh, He had been rejected by his master and left behind to die a horrible death. Verse 14 gives us a more extensive report of what happened uh, behind verse 1. In other words, we are told that uh, uh, the retaliation includes the Negev or the south of the Cherethites, which belongs to Judah, and the south of the Negev of Caleb. And you can see uh, the Negev of Caleb on your map there uh, uh, just to the right of Ziglag. This was a much more broadly based marauding invasion by the Amalekites and just focusing on Ziglag. They were taking advantage of David's uh, absence. In fact, he wasn't protecting these regions that he had protected before by uh, opposing uh, the Philistine uh, uh, and Amalekite and other uh, uh oppressors in that region, now they are taking advantage and uh, plundering uh, uh, routinely here. Now in verse 15 David asks if the slave will bring him down to the retreating Amalekite band and the slave first asks David to swear by God that uh, he will not deliver him into the hands of his master. Now this may seem, uh, again, incidental, but notice here that what the slave is doing in asking David not to turn himself, not to turn him back to his master, this slave is asking to be distanced from the acts of the marauders themselves as though he took no direct part in them because he was only the slave of his master who was participating. And so, swear by God, take the highest oath possible, the oath of a deity, swear by God that you will not turn me back over uh, to my master. Because, of course, if he were given back to his master, he would likely be saved from starving to death or dying of his sickness to be killed by his master uh, if he were given back into his hands. And so notice the transition here. The transition which moves from death to life in the case of the slave. His life, his his death-like life is going to become a life uh, a, a, a life life, okay? He's not going to be given over to death. That transition is going to be the instrument. It's going to be the means of the death which hangs upon uh, David's uh, entourage that's been captured being turned into life when David rescues them. So the reversal in the fortune of the slave is a parallel to the reversal of the fortune in the lives of David and his uh, soldiers' loved ones. He's the key. The slave is the key to the point of transition. His life, his being spared from death, is the key to the life of David's loved ones and his soldiers' loved ones being spared from death. This is where the story takes the next step in its unfolding drama. And in verse 16, when he brings David down, behold, the Amalekites are feasting and eating and drinking in celebration of the spoil that they have taken from the land of the Philistines, namely Ziklag, and the land of Judah, namely the Negev of the Cherethites and the Negev of Caleb. Now here I want you to notice how the narrator lines up the retaliation in kind. What I mean by that is as the Amalekites raided Ziglag, so David raids the Amalekites. And the parallel symmetry of this retaliation that David brings is is, uh, expressed in terms that are exactly alike. So our narrator is using terms in the Hebrew text which are precisely parallel in order to show that what David does is take eye for eye and tooth for tooth. In other words, the law of proportional punishment. As they had taken and and took away, verses 16, 18, and 19, so David in verse 20 took. as they had overthrown and smote, verse 1. So David smites or overthrows in verse 17. Very same Hebrew terms. The parallel, the use of the symmetrical terms is an underscoring of the lex talionis. That is the law of proportionate punishment. That doesn't mean you take a life for poking out your eye. You see, it's the proportionate Principle there. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Not life for eye. Not life for tooth. Okay, And it doesn't literally mean you knock out the guy's tooth if he knocks yours out. It's it's the idea that there's a proportional sense of justice here. You don't overreact. You don't underreact. You react in perfect equity. That's the principle. David is acting in perfect equity here. Verse 2. They carried off or drove off. Verse 20, he drove ahead. David does exactly what they did, same Hebrew verb. Verse 2, small and great. David, verse 19, rescues small and great, exactly same Hebrew terms. Verse 3, wives, sons, and daughters. Verses 18 and 19, David rescues wives, son, and daughters. Once again, David's actions are proportionate to the crime that has been committed. He does exactly what proportionally, justly, equitably had been done to him in offense. But his his actions are also the outworking of God's promise in verse 8. His purpose is accomplished. He rescues all. He rescues them by repaying eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Now... Here's a case where the divine sovereignty in chapter in verse eight is matched by the human responsibility or the human accountability of David in verses 16 and following. God had sovereignly determined, predicted and promised that David would rescue all. And David doesn't sit around and wait for God to do it. Well, then maybe God will send a miracle and get them out. Or maybe if God said it, I don't have to do anything about it. No, God had sovereignly promised, and David is the instrument of the accomplishment of that promise. God decrees, and David responds to the decree. His response to divine sovereignty is his accountable responsibility to God's decree. And so the two go together. They are concurrent. Sovereignty and human responsibility. They run concurrently. They run together from concurro, the Latin term which means to run alongside of. B.B. Warfield has a very famous article on that in his book, Article on Predestination, in which he talks about the concurrence of God's divine decree and human responsibility and accountability. We don't deny human responsibility in our affirmation of divine predestination and sovereignty. We keep the two together. We are a both-and theological system. We are not Arminian either-or. It is either sovereignty or human responsibility. And since we don't we believe in, human so- in divine so- it is either divine sovereignty or human responsibility. Since we, as Armenians, don't believe in divine sovereignty, we believe in human responsibility. So we leave out that one. If it's either-or for Arminians, it's both-and for Calvinists. It's both and for David. It's in the book. In summary then, to this point, David draws his strength from the Lord in verse 6. David draws his guidance from the Lord in verse 8. David pursues and rescues his people from the enemy under the Lord, verse 18, and returns in verse 21 to Besor. Where in verse 22, he must fight another battle the battle of the sour grapes of his own soldiers. And now we see in verses 23 and 24 David's remarkable response to this mean spirited remark of some of his own uh, brother soldiers. Notice the word brothers that he uses in verse 23. He doesn't call them, you blockheads. (laughs) He doesn't say, you dolts. He doesn't say, you know, how stupid can you be? He calls them brothers. He says, look, we're part of a brotherhood. We are all in this together. And then he goes on in verse 24 to talk about an equitable distribution. Those who went down to the battle did their part. Those who stayed behind to uh, stand by and guard the baggage did their part. They were too exhausted to go on, so they did what they were able to do. They are part of our brotherhood. They are part of our entire campaign. And so they will be equitably treated. They will not be singled out as those who were uh, uh, lackadaisical, those who were gold-bricking, those who were making excuses for not going into the battle, they did their job. We needed to have someone take care of the baggage. They were too exhausted to go on. They were willing to take care of the baggage. They received the same cut as everybody else receives. Those who venture equally are rewarded equally. We all ventured equally upon this campaign. All will be equally rewarded who ventured upon this campaign. All right. David's royal kingdom is being unfolded, opened up here in this incident because he is acting with equanimity. with royal justice and benevolence. He is regarding his soldiers as his brother comrades and all of them, not just some of them. He is not singling out some for preferential treatment. He is giving all the equal treatment for equal effort. And that, of course, is the underlying principle of an equitable kingdom. Even as he equitably retaliates, eye for eye, against the Amalekites, he equitably distributes what he has taken from the Amalekites. David's kingdom is a kingdom of royal justice, equanimity, benevolence, kindness, and equity. That is what the kingdom of God is about. It is not about preferences for special interests or for special people or for special privileges. It is a place where equity and justice is always fairly administered. And if we slip off that track, If we start to pay favorites in the kingdom of God, then we have abandoned the principle that is not only present in the kingdom of David, it is present in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. For what do you have that you haven't received as a gift of grace in the first place? And if he dealt graciously with you, and equitably dealt graciously with all those who have, been come, who have been brought into his kingdom, then surely you have been given the best of the royal gifts. In verse 26, the return to Ziglag is bracketed with verse 1. And now part of the spoil goes to the elders of Judah, as you will note in that verse. Because the tribe of Judah is David's own tribe... And it is the area which he had protected by his own raids in chapter 27. Therefore, they are to benefit from the retaliation of those who had raided that territory. And David benevolently bestows that booty upon them. Verses 27 to 31 give a list of towns who also receive benevolence from the return of uh, this plunder from the Amalekites. Many of these towns are unknown, but you'll notice from your map that has Ziglag on it that several of them are placed upon that map Eshtemoa, Jatir, Horma, Aror, but others are not even known uh, as far as location today. The significance of that list that ends in verse thirty one is that the last city named is Hebron. why does he end why does our narrator end the list with Hebron because this is where David will be anointed publicly before Israel in second Samuel Hebron is the place where he will establish his base initially before he goes up to Jerusalem Hebron will be the place where he operates in opposition to Ishbosheth, who is the surviving son of Saul, who survives the battle of Jezreel and places his anti-kingdom in the Trans-Jordan region across the across Jer- from Jericho and bedevils David for several years. Hebron is the name that is open to the future again. You see, our narrator leaving the door of his narrative open to the pr- prospects of David's expanding kingdom and his upward, uh, upward spiraling destiny. David in chapter 30 is openly acting as a royal figure. He is grieving for his own touched with a feeling of their loss. He is seeking the Lord He is rescuing his people from oppression. He is equitably dealing with his servants. And he is bountifully distributing gifts to his own. This is the character in measure of a royal kingdom. David's upward spiral again displays the bearing of a king-touched king touched With his people's feelings, a king who seeks and rescues the captive, a king who acts judiciously and benevolently, this motif of David continues to spiral upwards. From chapter 16 and his anointing and election, the narrator draws us into this open, upwardly moving drama of David's remarkable Character, And here in chapter 30, we begin to see some of its particular details as he is now openly displayed as the king of the people of God. In chapter 30, the appearances are over. The hidden nature of David's kingdom is past. In chapter 30 the open display of the king of God's people seeking saving rescuing the captives comes to its full expression it will be the character of David at least to second samuel chapter 11 we belong to a better king a heavenly kingdom. A king and kingdom which has sought us, rescued us, ransomed us from captivity. A king who has dealt equitably with his sons and daughters. A king who distributes gifts in abundance to his children. The protological David reveals to us the perfect character of the eschatological David and his eschatological kingdom. That's the kingdom that you've been folded into even through the life of David himself. Do you have any questions or comments about Chapter 30. Yes, Vernon. Well, in verse 2, the Amalekites did not kill anybody. They just took them prisoner. <clears throat> so when you said that David's retaliation, and which he then later destroys all the Amalekites, they're drunk, or whatever you want to call it, Is that more because not what they did in Ziklag, but what they did to the other tribes in Judah that they they raided as well? It's partly that, and it's also involved in the execution of God's original decree against the Amalekites. David is now taking on the, shall we speak, the vengeance of God in destroying the Amalekites here because God had placed them under the ban of destruction. Even when they came into the, even when Israel came into the promised land originally. The fact that it had never been done is uh, being accomplished here. But thank you for that observation. It's a very good point to raise. Yes, Margaret? Another illustration of the sharing equally is that we are joint heirs with Christ. Good. Very good. Joint heirs with Christ. Yes, Rich? David rescued the Egyptian, the descendant of, of the oppressors of Israel. The eschatological David also rescued the Gentiles. Yes, very good. Good observation. He treats with benevolence those whom he saves from death, even the Gentiles. Who plead with him to bind themselves to him. Swear by your God. okay? And I bind yourself by oath to me. To preserve my life. Would Jesus turn away anybody who didn't come to him and say preserve my life? No. He will not turn away anyone who comes seeking salvation. Well, thank you again as you venture out into a rainy and stormy night. I wish you Godspeed and safe travels home.